The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 and 5. We begin with investors looking ahead to the final week of the first half of the year, with stock futures looking to extend last week's losses. This after a wild 36 hours in Russia and a deal to end what is being called the greatest threat ever to Vladimir Putin. And then here at home, the White House and NATO allies still trying to sort out and sort through the ripple effects of the averted insurrection, what it could mean for the Russia-Ukraine conflict and for the global energy markets. Plus, President Biden set to kick off a new push for his infrastructure agenda today. We are looking at the stocks involved. And then later in the show, we're drilling down on a sector that is surging. And this one, it has nothing to do with big tech or AI. It is Monday, June the 26th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Holland. Thank you for starting your day with us. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. stock futures as we get set for the final trading week of the first half of 2023 and the final trading week of the second quarter. Taking a look at futures right now, we see they're in the red across the board right now. If the markets were to open up, the Dow would open up about 70 points lower. Stocks, they're trying to bounce back after the major indexes. Worst weekly performance since early March and the Nasdaq's first down week in the past nine. We're also checking the bond market this morning with the two-year note hovering near its highest yield since March. Taking a look at yields, the 10-year benchmark right now at 3.68, a bit lower than we saw last week. However, as we mentioned, the two-year yield, that's surging. A lot of traders continuing to go there for safety. A lot of concerns about recession and stocks falling in the second half of the year. In crypto, we're looking at Bitcoin and Ether, as we always do. Take a look at Bitcoin right now, still above that 30,000 mark, up fractionally this morning. Ether still below that 2,000 mark, up fractionally this morning. All right, we begin this morning with our top story. And investors, they are still on edge after a wild weekend in Russia. Some are calling the armed rebellion the biggest threat to Vladimir Putin since he took office more than two decades ago. Case in point is oil, trading as high as 70 bucks a barrel before turning lower uh, right now, we're seeing oil prices, again, WTI crew back below 70 bucks a barrel, fractionally lower this morning. We're also looking at the commodity markets, specifically wheat. Wheat is popping. Russia is the world's largest wheat uh, exporter. Looking at wheat right now, up 2.5%, up more than double digits over the last week. So right now, NBC's Kelly Kobiea joins me now from Kiev with the very latest on this situation. Kelly, what are you hearing and seeing there? Well, good morning to you, Frank. We still haven't seen President Putin publicly since that extraordinary statement on Saturday when he vowed to crack down on the rebellion that was happening uh, at, in real time uh, in Russia. We have, however, seen his defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, uh, the Ministry of Defense in Russia this morning, putting out video claiming to show Shoigu meeting with troops in Ukraine, but we can't confirm when or where that video was shot. Another unknown this morning, the status of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner group of mercenaries, that group that led the rebellion on Saturday. He was promised a safe passage to
to Belarus. Uh, he hasn't been seen until the overnight hours of Saturday when he was uh, Shot. He was seen. Uh, he was in video leaving Rostov-on-Don, that southern city in Russia that he and his troops had taken over uh, during this extraordinary 36-hour rebellion. In a short clip uh, of Prigozhin, he can be heard saying the result of this rebellion was, quote, decent. We shook or cheered everyone up. Uh, but again, Telegram channels now silent for the past uh, 36 hours or so and no sign of Prigozhin. That incredible uh, and extraordinary rebellion took place over about 36 hours with Prigozhin first lambasting the Russian military uh, establishment, claiming that the justification for the war in Ukraine was all based on lies that Ukraine and NATO never planned uh, to invade Russia. Uh, then moving his troops from Ukraine across uh, the border into Russia, taking over that southern city, taking over the southern command for the war in Ukraine, and then sending his fighters north uh, close, to, uh, close to Moscow. What impact will it have in the battlefield uh, in Ukraine? Still uh, unknown. We probably won't know, Frank, for days, weeks to come even. All right, our Kelly Cobier live there at Key for NBC News. Kelly, great reporting as always. Good to see you. All right, let's get a sense of how Europe and Asia are handling this new injection of uncertainty and volatility. Our Juliana Tattlebaum is live in our London newsroom with the early trade. Juliana, we saw European markets open slightly higher. What are you seeing now? That's right, Frank. We did tick higher at the very start of trade this morning, but now equities have turned lower and sentiment has soured. We've got losses across the various regions here, fairly evenly spread. The underperformer, the Italian market down about 1%, but otherwise about half a percent down for all the major regions. On top of investors digesting the developments in Russia over the weekend, we also got some fresh German business morale survey data this morning, which was quite downbeat. And the IFO Institute, which puts together this closely watched survey data suggested that um, a downturn in Q2 or recession in Q2 is the likelihood of that has increased. So some downbeat data adding to the downbeat picture we saw on Friday with the flash PMIs that came through. Now, in terms of Asian trade, here's the picture of how things moved overnight. Also uh, downbeat sentiment here. The Hang Seng closing about half a percent lower. The Shanghai Composite in mainland China closing one and a half percent lower. So overall, the global sentiment has taken a hit this morning. Um, in terms of focus points this week for European investors, we've got Eurozone CPI prints coming through later this week and the ECB annual forum in Sintra, Portugal. We're going to hear from central bank chiefs from around the world. So two uh, big things to watch this week, Frank. All right, our Juliana Tattlebaum live in our London newsroom. Juliana, thank you. All right, let's keep this market conversation going. We're going to bring in Skylar Montgomery Coning, senior macro strategist at TS Lombard. Skylar, good morning. So good morning. <laughs> a, a lot of macro questions out there. This brief uh, rebellion, armed rebellion in Russia, just adding to the questions about what's the Fed going to do, possible recession. How do you think investors should look at everything this week, the final trading week of this of the second quarter and the first half of the year? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because we're in this environment where data is highly distorted. And so it's coming in kind of all over the place. There's still the possibility of a soft landing, a hard landing or this kind of no landing scenario, and we switched to data dependence by the majority of central banks, especially with the Fed pausing now. And so the market, you know, it's not only trading off of what's happening in expectations for the Fed and other central banks, but it's highly trading this data that's quite volatile. 
Um, So it's a very hard trading environment. (laughs) So I think a lot of people are saying that, including you right now. So a lot of volatility, a lot of different factors. So if you're going to talk to some of your clients or other people today, how would you position for the second half of the year? Yeah, it's really hard because we're having this kind of euphoria within equity markets, especially the U.S. equity market. And a lot of that has to do with AI and the tech rally. Um, and that, you know, in itself isn't hugely bubbly, I think, because we don't have the liquidity backing it. It's a good story. Um, and there is potential for growth there. And so it's not completely unwarranted that we're having this kind of equity upside. And I think, you know, with people under positioned, the risk is that we get a melt up in equities. But at the same time, you know, if a recession's coming at the second half of this year, it's, it's very worrying for risk assets. All right. So a lot of worry coming from you, coming from a lot of people. I want to talk to you about something a lot of people are looking at, it: the inverted yield curve. We're going to show it in a minute. Just for the viewers, the red part shows deeper inversion. As we've had deeper inversion over the past few weeks, what does that make you think about the second half setup? Are there certain sectors you would stay away from in this scenario? Yeah, I mean, so the yield curve inversion for us is a telltale sign of recession, and it definitely depends on what part of the yield curve you're looking at. So the twos, tens, which inverted first, that's less of a sign of a recession. It's not been as accurate. But the three-month, 10-year, definitely, um, that has 100% accuracy, even when you have these kind of ambiguous ends to cycles where you weren't expecting the end, so like COVID. Um, and the Fed's you know, preferred measure as well as the near-term forward spread, and that's also inverted. And so, you know, the thing is, you don't know how far after inversion that you actually get recession. There's not a huge correlation to the deepness of inversion in terms of, you know, deep inversion just tells you the market's expecting more cuts from the current point or or growth to slow even more. So it doesn't tell you the exact timing. But what it does tell you is that, you know, on average, 12 months after the three months, 10 year inverts, you do get a recession. And so the longer you go without a recession being confirmed, the more worried you are. All right. A lot to watch there. Skylar Koning, thank you for being here. Appreciate it. All right. A lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first, much more on the averted Russian insurrection and its impact on the global energy markets. RBC Capital Markets' Halima Croft is coming up. Plus, President Biden set to kick off a new push for his infrastructure agenda today. We're looking at the stocks involved. And then later, a merger Monday all about private equity and big tech. The full story in a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Just showing you the futures in the red in the pre-market. It's been a wild ride for mega cap tech and AI-related stocks. Continue to drop higher, even as recession and interest rate concerns dampen sentiment on other parts of the market. CNBC's Magnificent 7 Index, made up of the biggest AI players, including NVIDIA, Microsoft, and Alphabet, managing to eke out a slight gain last week. Still, there are questions about the sustainability of the AI rally. Michael Arone of State Street Global Advisors telling Dow Jones yesterday the rally for stocks could slow in coming weeks due to liquidity coming out of the system. But the use of the emerging technology only seems to be accelerating globally, along with calls for regulation. Here in the U.S. last week, President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer both speaking out about regulation of AI. However, Europe has taken the lead, drafting the EU AI Act through the EU uh, U.S. Trade Technology Council, where trustworthy artificial intelligence was the focus. The council holding a meeting on trustworthy artificial intelligence last month, including EU regulator Marguerite Vestager, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, Microsoft President Brad Smith, and my next guest, also part of that panel, Jonas Andrulis, is the founder and CEO of Aleph Alpha, a German company focused on sovereign generative AI, and he joins me now. Jonas, good morning. Hey, great to be here. All right, so we just laid out some of the landscape there, Jonas. You were part of that EU-U.S. Trade Council. You sat across from Brad Smith. You sat across from our U.S. Commerce Secretary. Give us a sense. What direction do you see AI regulation going in? And how is it going to impact businesses like yours and your ability to partner with big tech companies in Europe and the U.S.? You're already partnering with SAP and HP. Yeah, um, so there's a lot of movement currently in, in this whole kind of sector. And I'm speaking a lot with Brussels and Berlin, um, not so much with the U.S., but yeah, um, in, in that meeting, we were looking at um, existential risks, but also um, what it means for businesses. So there's risks on kind of different levels. There's this existential risk where people are actually afraid that AI will take over the world. But then there's also some very near term risks on applications like medical devices and stuff like that. So um, the AI, um, the, the European Union has basically um, led the charge here, has drafted an AI act. They're, they're changing it all the time. So um, there's a draft, but it kept changing and they kept adding like a new category for foundational technology. So it's all kind of messy. Um, and there are many um, um, groups in Germany and Europe that are warning that this could really throttle innovation okay. and uh, yeah, in Germany. So it's an unclear path forward. One thing is clear yeah. right now. Globally, open AI is kind of seen as the leader when it comes to generative AI. So I want to ask you a, a tough question here. We're looking at crunch-based data. Uh, OpenAI, it's raised about $11 billion. Your company's raised under $30 billion. So I just have to ask, with that kind of a war chest for OpenAI, how do you expect to compete with them? How can anybody compete with them with that kind of money and also the backing of Microsoft? Yeah, and that's a great question. And of course, we'll, we'll raise more money, uh, but not $10 billion. Um, but the, the challenge here is really not... Microsoft against Aleph Alpha. The challenge is Aleph Alpha, like our strategy is for sovereignty. We're partnered with those uh, enterprises you mentioned that, right? So the, the challenge is really we with uh, our partners against um, against uh, some other players. So SAP, HPE, there's many more to come. Um, the question for AI sovereignty is really not Aleph Alpha on its own. So as we look forward to AI, we keep hearing that AI is going to transform pretty much every part of the business world, every sector, every company. Where do you see the next leg of AI actually making a meaningful change to an enterprise? 
So a lot of the use cases we're now seeing, they're basically copywriting a chatbot. I mean, that's cool. Um, that those are fun use cases that you can, you can create a lot of value with that. But the stuff that we are currently working on that goes much further. It is, um, handling complexities, driving business processes, and is really going, um, in, in use cases where, um, you need trust and you need complexity. So that's really, I think, what, what will happen next on, uh, and this will have tremendous impact on, on value capture and creation. How important will it be for there to be large language models trained in Europe as opposed to trained in Silicon Valley or here in the U.S. when it comes to selling yourself and other companies um, to large enterprises like an HP or an SAP? Um, is the differentiation, is that important or is it just simply having those AI capabilities? The, the location of our headquarters, I mean, it, uh, is, is uh, that it's in Heidelberg, doesn't really matter too much. Um, it is about sovereignty. So we are working with a lot of U.S. partners and enterprises and international partners, and they don't care about where our postal address is. They care about the fact that we offer them like a full stack sovereign solution, an alternative to, to the hyperscalers and to the clouds. So I think that's really the play. And of course, from like a European perspective, from like a perspective of European governments, we care about technological sovereignty as we should. Um, but from the perspective of our customers, it really doesn't matter where we're located. All right. Jonas Andrula, CEO of Aleph Alpha, thank you for joining us, giving some insight on European regulation and also the future of AI. Appreciate you being here. Awesome. Thanks for having me. All right. As we head to break here in Worldwide Exchange, a market flash. And check out shares of China EV maker BYD. Just crossing moments ago, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway says... It has sold 2.5 million Hong Kong listed shares for $86.3 million. This sale brings Berkshire's stake in the company to below 9%. Much more worldwide exchange back after this. Shares of BYD down more than a half a percent. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Taking a look at futures right now. Futures in the red across the board. The Nasdaq to hardest hit down about a quarter of a percent. The Dow off its lows from earlier, but right now looking like it would open up about 41 points lower. We also want to look at some of the pre-market movers this morning. Taking a look first at the Nasdaq 100 laggards. Tesla among those names down almost 2%. Alphabet also in there as well as Airbnb down three quarters of a percent. Also look at the Dow laggards, Nike shares down in the pre-market right now ahead of its earnings later on this week. Also seeing Microsoft still on this list, Goldman Sachs and Salesforce among the names there. Chevron turning very slightly positive in the pre-market. All right, time now for a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Our Savannah Hanau is here with those. Silvana. Good morning. Hey, Frank. Good Monday morning to you. Well, Apollo Global is reportedly leading a group of lenders making a debt investment of as much as 
$2 billion in chipmaker Wolfspeed to support its U.S. expansion plans. Sources close to CNBC say the deal would make $1.25 billion available immediately to Wolfspeed with another $750 million that could be drawn at a later time and that the debt can be paid after three years. The deal could be announced in the coming days. OPEC says global oil demand will rise to 110 million barrels per day, and that's in approximately 20 years. That's an increase of 23 percent. The organization's secretary general saying this morning that oil is irreplaceable for the foreseeable future and that oil will still compromise about 20, comprise about 29 percent of the energy mix by 2045. OPEC adding the underinvestment in the oil industry will challenge the viability of current energy systems and lead to an energy chaos. And IBM is reportedly close to a deal to buy cloud-based software company Aptio from private equity firm Vista Equity Partners. Citing, close, citing sources close to the matter, the Wall Street Journal says the $5 billion deal is more than double what Vista paid for the company nearly five years ago. If confirmed, the deal would help IBM further its push into cloud computing-related services through Appio's platform for management and strategic business planning, Frank. All right, Silvana, thank you very much. Yeah. All right, straight ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. First, it was James Bond. Now, Aston Martin is partnering with another big-name brand, this time with an EV push in mind. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Much more Worldwide Exchange back right after this. It's right around 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area, and we are just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. Stocks looking to extend last week's sizable losses as investors look ahead to the final week of the first half of 2023. Futures are in the red. Wall Street, Washington, and Kiev still digesting a wild weekend in Russia. We are looking at the deal that ended what is being called the greatest threat ever to Vladimir Putin. Plus, it's a sector on the move, and it has nothing to do with big tech or AI. This time, it's all about the GOAT trade. It is Monday, June the 26th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Collin. Thank you for starting your day with us. Let's pick up the half an hour with a check on U.S. stock futures. Futures this morning, they are in the red across the board. The Nasdaq, really the hardest hit, but they're all down fractionally lower. The Nasdaq down about a quarter of a percent the Dow off of its lows of just earlier this morning. This is investors gear up for the final trading week of the first half of 2023 and the Q2 earnings season. And it could be an ugly one. According to FactSet, analysts are expecting a third straight quarter of falling profits with per share earnings for S&P 500 companies forecast to fall by 6.5 percent. Now, that would be the worst quarterly performance since the second quarter of 2020. As we all remember, that was the pandemic. But for the rest of the year, forecast, at least for now, they call for brighter days ahead. For the third quarter, Wall Street analysts expect corporate per share profit to rise 0.7% year over year. You're seeing that outlook right there. And then for the fourth quarter, they're expecting an 8% year over year gain. All right, time now for your morning call sheet, where we check on a few of this morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades by firms that you know and stocks that you likely own. Kicking things off, we got a big one, Goldman Sachs downgrading Tesla to neutral from buy, saying the stock now better reflects its positive long-term view following its stratospheric move higher this year. Goldman adds it's also cognizant of the difficult pricing environment for new vehicles. Taking a look at shares of Tesla this morning, down about 2 percent. 
UBS downgrading Alphabet to neutral from buy. Among its chief concerns, UBS says it will be difficult for Google to show meaningful upside from what, from what are already lofty growth estimates. The firm says the risk reward is better for names like Amazon and for Meta. Looking at shares of Alphabet, down one and a half percent. We have one more for you. UBS upgrading Moderna from neutral to buy, setting a valuation pullback and a positive pipeline progress post-COVID. Shares of Moderna up three percent. All right, let's get back to our top story. And investors really still unnerved by this past weekend's short-lived armed rebellion against Russian President Vladimir Putin. It ended with Moscow signing a deal with the mercenary army known as the Wagner Group and its leader. Ahead of that deal, U.S. crude spiking. And we're also looking at futures this morning, as we mentioned in the red. But U.S. crude spiking a bit kind of off those lows. But we did see, I mean, off those highs, excuse me. But we did see U.S. crude spiking to as much as 70 bucks a barrel before falling sharply in the early trade. We're also looking at commodities this morning. Wheat on the move to the upside with Russia still known as the world's top exporter this morning. Taking a look at wheat up just about 2% and over the last week up double digits. All right, joining me now is Halima Croft, RBC Capital Markets Head of Global Commodity Strategy and a CNBC contributor to really talk about everything that we're seeing here in Russia. Halima, it is always great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Frank. All right, let's just talk about it. We're really getting in your wheelhouse, both oil and just broader commodities, wheat. What can we expect from the commodities market with Russia having, you know, an impact on the oil market, but such an impact on the global wheat market. I mean, what I think about Russia is it's a global commodity superstore. I mean, it's oil, it's gas, it's agriculture, it's metals. And the big concern over the weekend was a potential declaration of martial law that would lead to the closure of the major ports. So that's what the White House was really game planning. They were making calls to key producers. They wanted to signify, if there was a disruption, that they were taking steps to abate any crisis in the market. But again, Markets are breathing a bit of a sigh of relief because the worst-case scenario did not play out. Yeah, certainly not a worst-case scenario. I think uh, we've seen a lot of our CNBC.com articles saying basically a sigh of relief for the oil markets and the commodity markets. I want to talk more broadly. Um, How would you view the headline risk from this entire situation Beyond oil and beyond commodities, we're talking just currency and just the impact on the global markets. I mean, I think a lot of us were factoring in like a multi-year war in Ukraine with the Russians continuing to lead to the U.S. presidential election. What we weren't factoring in is potential chaos in Russia. And what does that mean for the world's largest nuclear power? And so now I think that is something everyone is having to think about for the back half of the year. Yes, Prigozhin has gone to Belarus, but what does this mean for the state of security in Russia right now? You know, you're hitting on something right now. The uh, leader of that armed rebellion being sent to Belarus. Now, I think a lot of us have a certain depiction of Vladimir Putin. And this seemed like a a merciful end. Is that a, a good way to put it? And maybe even a surprising one. So what does that mean about the future of this Ukraine-Russia conflict and maybe just his position in the entire world? I mean, Ian Bremmer was out this morning essentially saying Prigozhin is dead man walking. So what happens if Vladimir Putin does not take a strong stance against Prigozhin? Does that potentially invite more internal dissent? So we're just going to have to see how this plays out. But Prigozhin's forces were the ones that allowed the Russians to take Bakhmut. The question is, what does this mean for the Russian battlefield strength in Ukraine? But again, more importantly, what does it mean for internal stability inside Russia? I mean, you had a situation where they could take Rostov with very little opposition, concerns about his support within the security services. So we are now having to factor in potential internal chaos in Russia going forward. Yeah, certainly something to watch. We want to add another voice to this conversation, Halima. Uh, Tina Fordham, she's a former city chief global political analyst 
And currently, Fordham Global Foresight founder and geopolitical strategist advising boards and C-suites about geopolitical risk and social change. Gina, I mean, Tina, excuse me. Thank you for joining us. Morning. So I want to ask you, what about the headline risk here? We're seeing disruption, as Lima mentioned, in one of the world's biggest nuclear powers, also a big exporter of wheat and an oil producer. What does this do to the global markets? And should we be looking at the, the currency markets and other markets as well? Well, what's interesting is that the the weekend developments were undoubtedly the most significant political um, sort of uh, display in in Russia for probably thirty years since uh, since I was in uh, Moscow in ninety six uh, for the, for the uh, re-election of Yeltsin, and yet markets barely blinked. Um, I think this tells us a few things, although it's pretty consistent with what we typically see historically, that important geopolitical developments often don't move markets unless there is a clear transmission mechanism. Um, Halima has already made the case for why this is important, but maybe some softening in in the ruble. Um, Nothing that's happened suggests uh, in a, a kind of a, a, a reduction in Russia's energy exporting capacity, but it is Russia's internal state stability, the future of leadership, and I'd focus on loose nukes um, a bit more than uh, a, an escalation, a, a formal escalation in Ukraine. But we've got a lot more volatility than many were expecting. I think markets got used to the idea that the war in Ukraine would continue for some time and kind of moved on. Now it's looking um, a lot more wobbly. All right. So as you mentioned, wobbly, um, as we look as investors look at this, of course, this is a show really focused on investments. Um, does this change any narrative about any U.S. sectors? When we're seeing wheat prices spike a bit, that's going to obviously change the input cost to a lot of companies here in the U.S. And in recent weeks, we've also been talking about defense stocks. Has that changed the outlook for those in your mind? Well, we're going to have the NATO meetings in Vilnius, Lithuania, in two weeks' time. And one of the things that we're going to see, in my view, is a call for even more arms going to Ukraine. I do think NATO member states that haven't quite hit the 2% target are going to be pushed to do that. Um, There's a much bigger understanding and appreciation, I would say, at the government level, that you need to fight fire with fire, that we are in what I call a new geopolitical risk super cycle. And so, yes, defense stocks benefit. Um, U.S. markets, you know, again, tend to be fairly impervious to geopolitical risk. But I do think this dampens risk appetite um, a fair amount. And um, certainly judging by the emails and calls I had over the weekend from from U.S. investors, people are watching carefully. They just may not be changing their portfolio allocations or or making decisions on the back of this. It's a wait and see situation. Yeah, I'm sure both of you had very busy weekends, both of your phones and emails kind of getting blown up over the weekend. So I want to talk to you, Halim. I want to bring it full circle back to the oil markets. I'm looking at WTI still below 70 bucks a barrel, even after this level of disruption. And of course, OPEC cuts and Saudi Arabia voluntary cuts. When are we going to see more upside or can we see more upside in the market if we haven't seen it already with all these disruptions? Fantastic question, because I think the fact that we have not had major Russian disruptions is weighing on the market. When the war began, we had that massive run up in oil prices because people were thinking a three million barrel a day disruption out of Russia with sanctions. The fact that Russian output has remained resilient in the face of sanctions 
price caps has given investors a lot of concern about are we an oversupplied market? And we have continued concerns about, you know, softness in China. Despite good import numbers for China for oil, there's still concern about the manufacturing sector. People saying, is this oil going into inventory? So it's the demand concerns plus the abundant supply, obviously, that's weighing on the market. But people will have to watch now and think about if we have internal issues in Russia, can Russian exports hold up? Again, everyone's breathing a sigh of relief. But we don't know if the story is over. Yeah, a lot of questions. But what do you think? I mean, is this situation resolved for the most part? And will we continue to see Russian exports when it comes to oil? Or are we possibly facing some real disruption? Again, I think it's a great uncertainty. I don't think anyone had really penciled in, you know, an internal uprising in Russia. You know, Prigozhin reportedly has support in the security services. So the question is, what does this mean for Vladimir Putin's staying power? All right, Tina, I want to come over to you with one key takeaway for investors today. Obviously, there are continue to be questions about how this situation is going to fully resolve itself. But for investors, how would you view what we saw over the weekend and how would you look at investing around this globally going forward? Well, again, I see the developments as consistent with my thesis on the new geopolitical risk super cycle. Um, I actually have been flagging internal fragmentation in Russia and disruption along the Russian periphery. I think what investors need to do in this case is view what's happening in Russia more through the lens of Goodfellas uh, than, than James Bond. Um, and, you got to explain, think- Tina. You can't yeah. just throw that out there. You got to explain that one. <laughs> uh, Russia as a as a kleptocracy and organized crime state rather than a kind of finely tuned intelligence machine. I, I hope that if any investors take away anything from the weekend developments, it is uh, to put to rest this idea that Putin plays three-dimensional chess. He may not be on the scene for much longer after 23 years, and what follows him uh, makes Russia a, a much riskier bet. Again, most few investors are exposed in that respect. Um, but what we need to think about is that transmission mechanism that takes regional geopolitical risk to something that affects global markets. That's okay. what Halima talked about in commodities and grain. So this autumn, uh, everything in, in much in focus. And 2024, huge election year. U.S., U.K., Russia and Ukraine, um, Indonesia, India, you name it. Big democracy. So okay. there's a lot to play for. Uh, when it comes to geopolitics and the market impact more than we're used to. A lot going on there. I was kind of expecting a Joe Pesci reference. I got to be honest, Tina. Tina Fordham and Halima Croft, it's great to have you both here. Thank you so much for your time and for your insight. Thank you. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the stock's riding high thanks to the get out and travel trade. Why one sector still has more room to cruise ahead. A little hint there. Stay with us. Much more Worldwide Exchange back after the break. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a check on the early trade in Europe and some of the headlines dominating conversations on trading desks all around the world. Our Jamana Brissetti is standing by in our London newsroom with your global briefing. Jamana, good morning. That's right, Frank. So a bit of a risk-off bias to global markets today, but let me bring you some of the three top stories that we are focused on overnight. S&P Global has cut China's GDP forecast to 5.2% for 2023. That is down from 5.5%. It is the first such move for China from a global credit ratings agency this year, but it follows similar cuts from major investment banks as China's post-pandemic recovery remains uneven. Remember, we spoke about Goldman Sachs just last week. 
Elsewhere, shares in Element 25 soared on Monday after the Australian Minerals Company agreed to supply General Motors with manganese sulfate. The deal comes as GM looks to secure its supply of minerals for EV battery production and as Element 25 seeks new customers for its battery plant in Louisiana due to open in 2025. And elsewhere in the political space, nothing to do with Russia, but Greece's conservative New Democracy Party won the country's parliamentary election this weekend, comfortably beating its main rival, the leftist Syriza. The incumbent prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, won another four years in office after receiving 40.5% of the votes. And as you know, Frank, Greece has been one of the success stories of the Eurozone after the last 10, de last 10 years, I should say, after the last decade, uh, emerging from that bailout in a much stronger position than it was before. All right, our Jemana Brissetti with your global briefing. Jemana, thank you very much. All right, sticking with stocks in one sector, outside of tech, that's seen a huge run-up in recent weeks. We're talking about the cruise lines. Shares of Carnival moving higher this morning, adding to gains of nearly 100% this year as demand for travel and experiences continues to strengthen into the summer. And it's not just Carnival. Royal Caribbean and Norwegian cruise lines are also up big this year, with Royal Caribbean hitting a new 52-week high on Friday. Let's talk much more about this with James Hardiman, city travel and leisure analyst. James, good morning. Morning. Thanks for having me. All right. So it seems like a lot of this is being powered, these upside moves for these cruise line stocks by what we call the goat trade, the get out and travel trade. How much longer is this sustainable? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as, as you pointed out, these stocks have, have had a great run. Um, I think these are the last remaining reopening plays, so to speak, um, coming out of covid uh, I think there's some interesting uh, company-specific stories here as well, as we'll learn a little bit more about with Carnival later on this morning. But, you know, we've raised our price target, I think, three times in the last month or so. Um, we still think, uh, you know, Carnival specifically, uh, as you have that chart up, uh, we still think there's another 15 to 30 percent upside. Yeah, pretty impressive chart. Carnival shares up more than half a percent ahead of earnings right now. Um, and one of your more recent notes, you said, Cruise line pricing has increased by 9% year-over-year in May, at least it did. Um, not year-over-year, excuse me, over 2019 pricing, up 9%. Carnival actually, kind of the contrary company there, their pricing actually didn't see that big of a bump. But I want to ask you, how much of that is inflation and how much of that is actual pricing power gains for these companies? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's critical to understand here is that the cruise lines essentially sat out that multi-year period of unprecedented inflation. Uh, and so on a relative basis, we've seen much less pricing uh, from these cruise lines than just about any other uh, consumer sector, most notably uh, traditional lodging, right, land-based vacations. Prior to the pandemic, um, you're looking at a, a pricing discount of call it 20 to 30 percent cruise lines versus land-based vacations. Today, that number is more like 40 to 50 percent. Um, and so we think that is a is a big opportunity as consumers start to, to pinch pennies and, and think about getting most bang for their buck. I want to go to another one of your data points in your notes. Searches for cruise, when you look at uh, online, uh, were up 132 percent in May over 2019 levels. So all this interest, how much is, does that actually convert to real life bookings? Yeah, I mean, that that is um, I, I think historically there's been a very strong correlation uh, between those two data points. I think um, we are just finally beginning to see uh, the marketing engine re-engage, right, um, uh, relative to the, to, the, to the pandemic. And so as these, these companies, which have really added to their offerings, 
um, are getting those offerings more in front of consumers. Consumers are taking notice. Um, they're they're doing the cruise searches online, and ultimately they're they're booking those cruises. Um, wave season, uh, which is what the industry calls that January through March period, where a disproportionate number of of bookings are are made, was extremely strong this year, and that tends to bode well for the rest of the season. All right, James Hardiman from City. You have a price target of eighteen dollars per share for Carnival ahead of earnings. Those shares up more than a half a percent. Thank you for your time and for your insight. Thank you. All right, ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, the one word that every investor needs to know today. But first, actor-turned-investor Ryan Reynolds growing his business portfolio by one. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Plus, June is Pride Month, and CNBC is celebrating all month long and sharing stories of corporate leaders with you. Here is Maeve Duvali, principal at Glasheen & Company. For me, Pride Month is truly a celebration of the uniqueness of our community, but it's also an opportunity for the LGBTQ plus community to come together in solidarity because there's strength in numbers. And particularly this year, when there's a lot of hate and intolerance against certain parts of our community, solidarity is crucial. For those of us who are comfortable being visible, who are comfortable speaking out, we need to come together and do that uh, to fight this hate and intolerance. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. Six stories you need to know before the opening bell. Bad weather and technology on the East Coast canceling more than 1,000 flights and delaying thousands of others this weekend, marking one of the most challenging travel days in months. British luxury car maker Aston Martin striking a deal to buy its batteries from EV maker Lucid as it prepares to launch its own electric vehicles in 2025. Aston currently buys batteries from Mercedes-Benz. Stitch Fix appointing former Macy's executive Matt Baer as its new CEO, succeeding founder Katrina Lake, who has run the company on an interim basis since earlier this year. Lake will continue in her role as executive chairwoman. Rihanna is stepping down as CEO of her lingerie brand. Savage times Fenty and naming former Anthropology Group CEO Hillary Super as the new top executive. The brand has been a massive success for the singer, helping to launch her into billionaire status in 2021. Ford recalls more than a quarter of a million Explorer SUVs, prompting an investigation by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration over complaints about repairs intended to prevent the vehicles from unexpectedly rolling away. An F1 team Alpine receiving an approximately $20 million cash injection from a group of investors, including actor Ryan Reynolds, representing a 24% stake in that French operation. Well, now that the Fed's meeting and Jay Powell's congressional testimony, they're out of the way. The markets are now waiting on the jobs report next week and the start of earnings season in about three weeks. So how should investors position themselves? Let's bring in Greg Branch, founder and managing partner at Veritas Financial and a CNBC contributor. Greg, always great to see you. Morning, Greg. All right. So a lot of uncertainty out here, Greg, about what the Fed's going to do, possible recession. You throw Russia in there and some uncertainty there. How do you view this trading day ahead? Keep in mind the futures are in the red. Yeah, this, this trading day and I think the next few weeks uh, are going to be a bit volatile as we search for a direction or as investors search for, as you said, those events are going to play out. Uh, to me, they don't actually lack certainty, uh, Frank. You know, I think the Fed has clearly spelled out what their positioning is, although they did choose to pause. They, they obviously came out with very hawkish body language. And I think at the end of the day, the, the data we have presents to them, it presents to us the feeling that they need to continue to raise. And so I'm continuing to expect a terminal rate 
above 6%. The market's not reflecting that. Uh, I think that this earnings season will be important because I continue to believe that consensus is way too high in the back half. The okay. market's not reflecting that. So I think these next few weeks, we'll search for a direction and need some clarity. All right. So you're saying the market's not reflecting what you believe is the reality. So with that in mind, what is your Wex word of the day? And my Wex word of the day is conundrum. This, uh, this market is presenting both the Fed and investors with a conundrum. Uh, what we're seeing is a market that is uh, too hot uh, to necessarily give the Fed comfort that inflation is or will continue to come down, yet it's not strong enough to justify the estimates we're seeing for the fourth quarter for 2024. So whatever the inverse or the opposite of Goldilocks is, that's what we're looking at right now, Frank. All right, so let's talk about where where you see uh, as investable areas in the market today. I know you're very bullish on healthcare, but I, I want to talk to you about healthcare. Um, actually down two and a half percent year to date. And also there was a really great CNBC article over the weekend that two of the most uh, overbought and oversold stocks in the market are in the healthcare sector. J&J, the most overbought. Humana, the most oversold. Um, seems to be some differing opinions when it comes to healthcare. Where do you see the upside for healthcare today and for the rest of the year? Right. And, and to be clear, I, I think it presents a safe haven. I don't know if I'd call myself uh, very bullish on any, any equities at this point, given that I think the markets will pull back 20 percent. Uh, but, you know, we need to separate those two things. So on the insurer side, you know, I think a UNH gave investors pause for thought or pause to flee, however you want to characterize that, uh, on some concern and rising MLR. Uh, and yes, there was some pent up demand from seniors. I think that has passed. That's what pent up demand does. If we thought it was structurally higher demand, that'd be a different story. So I, I think with the likes of Humana and the other insurers, this is probably a buying opportunity. These companies with very strong balance sheets, very strong cash flows, and like big tech, will deliver us relatively strong earnings growth, even in a challenging macro environment where everything else is contracting. Some of the same can be said for big pharma. Obviously, pipeline success draws a lot of that. And when you look at two of the biggest tailwinds with diabetes and weight loss, you know, those stocks are trading at 50 times for Lilly, 30 times for Novo. Uh, but again, probably a safe haven. Okay. I don't know if multiples are going to matter as breath continues so, to matter. So, Greg, you're looking for safety. You're also eyeing cybersecurity. So same theory here. It's a safe play. And if so, is it an ETF play? Is it a single stock play? Uh, same theory here. Probably more of an ETF at this point, although there are companies I like better than others, uh, giving current traction. But they, they have strong secular tailwinds. That's what the market will continue to look for and reward in addition to uh, strong earnings growth. You know, when you look at the uh, all of our activities moving to the cloud, so there's certainly more runway there and probably new runway okay. provided by AI for, for all those companies as well. All right, Greg, thank you very much. Great to see you as always. Uh, before we let you guys go, one quick look at the futures right now. Futures actually off their lows of earlier this morning. Uh, the Dow looks like it's pretty close to flat. The Nasdaq still the hardest hit down fractionally, though. And that's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. We've got Squawk Box coming up next. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. 
This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 